Hello, greetings. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrew podcast. My name is Ethan. Very glad that you've joined us today and uh, thankful for the gift of spending time as we explore more what the Hebrews author has to say. We pick up in chapter 3 and verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear? that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Hebrews author is in the middle of another exhortation. We've seen that he's been making a sustained argument alongside a series of exhortations, all of which is rooted in the first four verses of chapter 1, where he declared how God had spoken in many times and many ways to the fathers, by the prophets, and now has spoken in the Son, that is the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power, having made purifications for sins, sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and now is uh, a name higher than the angels. The rest of chapter 1 explores uh, the scriptural proofs the Hebrews author wants to adduce to how Jesus disappeared to the angels, and in the process, also showing that Jesus is everything that the Hebrews author mentioned, that he... uh, is uh, the means by which God worked to create things, that he uh, is Lord and is the King and uh, is uh, the Son of God. Chapter 2, 1 through 4, we have our first exhortation that we need to really pay attention to what we've heard because if this law of Moses delivered by angels uh, led to uh, swift punishment, um, how much more are we going to suffer if we neglect a great salvation that we hear from God himself? testified by Jesus, and then uh, witness borne to it by those who heard him and saw him, and God attested by them with all of these various signs and wonders. In the rest of chapter 2, he returned to his uh, sustained argument, uh, looking at Psalm 8 as a way of looking at Jesus as the one like a son of man, uh, who uh, is now seen here in Psalm 8 as um, made for a little while lower than the angels uh, in order to uh, obtain um, dominion through what he suffered, and the Hebrews author will make a a sustained argument regarding the humanity of Jesus, that he had to become like his brothers, humans, in every way in order to um, identify with them, to be that wonderful high priest uh, who is able to intercede for them, uh, because he understands what they have gone through, having gone through it himself, having suffered death. In chapter 4, verse 14, he's going to pick up again with that whole uh, issue of the priesthood, and we'll spend much time talking about Jesus as a high priest. But then in chapter 3 and verse 1, we go back to another exhortation. 
And the exhortation is to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and how he is faithful to God who appointed him over God's house. God's house are his people, we saw in chapter 3, 1 through 6, that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, uh, alluding to Numbers 12, but Jesus is faithful as a son. And we are his house, the Hebrews author says, if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And now he begins this extended explanation looking at Psalm 95. And this will consume the rest of the section from chapter 3 and verse 7 all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13. So it's important for us to see what Psalm 95 is all about. And what he has quoted for us many times is Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11. Uh, But we need to do well to understand the entire psalm uh, if we're going to understand what the Hebrews author is trying to do. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For Yahweh is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." It's very easy to look at Psalm 95 as this kind of bifurcated uh, two-part thing. And there's certainly two movements here. It begins with this declaration of praise, declaration to come and glorify God, how great he is, a great God who has made us, and that we should worship before him. Uh, we are his people. We are the sheep of his hand. He is our God. That's covenant loyalty language. And then the contrast. And if you hear his voice, do not be like this generation that hardened their hearts that um, did all these things in rebellion. And so what's what's going on here? What is the psalmist referring to? Uh, the Hebrews author will speak of him as David. Psalm 95 is not attributed. It certainly could have been written by David. The Hebrews author could just, just be using David as a cipher for talking about the psalms. Um, so what is going on there? Uh, David is peeling back to, as the Hebrews author explains in verses... Uh, 16 through 18, the generation in the wilderness. Those who left Egypt led by Moses, uh, that their bodies fell in the wilderness, and these are the ones to whom he swore they would not enter his rest. Well, what was going on there? Well, we see this in a persistent pattern. In the Hebrews author quotation of it, we hear about it in the rebellion, the day of testing. In the psalm, we see it written as Meribah and Masa. And of course, these are rebellion and tempting. And these go back to two specific incidents. The first one is in Exodus 17, and the second one is in Numbers 20. In Exodus 17, they have just come out of Egypt. Uh, in chapter 14, chapter 15 is the song of, of uh, Moses. And now they are in the wilderness in the Sinai Peninsula. And, of course, the wilderness there is desert. And being a desert, there's no good water. And the water they come upon in chapter 17 is bitter. It's salty. It's brine. It can't be drunk. 
And the Israelites, in response, make a specific declaration. Why did you bring us out here to kill us in the wilderness? It's not like they said, wow, this is bad. Hey, can we ask God to get some water? Hey, we're going to be in difficult straits here if we don't get water. It's, it's not just despair. It's not just anxiety and fear here. It's outright rebellion. Why did you bring us out here to die in this wilderness? As if they had not noticed how God had preserved them so far. Uh, the later incident, of course, this, then God does provide them water there. He provides them with manna. He provides them with the law. They've heard his voice. Uh, they've been wandering for 40 years by the time we get to Numbers 20. And Numbers 20, they are at another place. They don't have water. And he says, they say again, Why have you brought us out to kill us in this wilderness? There's no food here. There's no water here. Would that we had died with our brothers earlier. And that what they're saying earlier there is looking at the experiences from Numbers 14 to that point where you had had the uh, the spies go out and their report and the people believed all the spies who said that it was impossible for them to take the land and God came against them with anger at that point. Uh, those who had gone out to fight after they repented, quote-unquote, and died, uh, the sons of Korah and their rebellion, and they all died. Uh, and so you have these people who have died in, in, in rebellion, and now all the Israelites are saying, would that we had died with them, as opposed to endure these things. Uh, they were at the precipice of the promised land, especially by Numbers 20. You know, At that point, um, chronologically, it would not be long before Josh would lead them into the land. Um, but they, even though they were so close, they were in this desert, they were in this wilderness, they saw the, 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 the anxiety and the fear and the difficulties, the inhospitable climate in which they found themselves, and they rebelled. They lost hope. They did not put their trust in God. They actively rebelled. Why have you brought us out here to die? And so what the psalm is saying is these men put God to the test, put to the proof, though they had seen his work. Again, this is the very generation that God had brought out of Egypt. They had seen his signs and wonders. He had, they had seen all the plagues. They had seen his deliverance uh, going through the Red Sea. They had been the generation to experience that liberation, and yet. And yet. And so... This is where the, the Hebrews author is going to make a lot of arguments based on this. Uh, but the first argument that is being made about this experience is in verse 12 through 14. And, and that's where it's kind of everything you know, before and after kind of go back to that. And so what does he say? To take care lest they be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Very specific exhortation here. Um, because what were those Israelites in the wilderness but God's people? The chosen people, the people of the promise, who had received the benefits of the promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had received his liberation. They had been saved out of Egypt. They were, they were the covenant people of God. They were the ones whom God had literally said on the mountain, I will be your God, you will be my people. They had ratified that covenant on Sinai. And yet, within them, they maintained an evil, unbelieving heart. 
just because a person professes to be a person, a people of God, does not mean that they have a good and faithful heart. Just because somebody has in the past been part of the people of God doesn't mean they will continue to have a good and believing, faithful heart. That the Christians, brothers here should we see as brothers and sisters, it should be about all of them, uh, are to be on guard lest this kind of bitterness, this kind of rebellion uh, grows up in any one of them. That's the danger that he's seeing might be happening with the Christians that he's uh, speaking to or writing to. And this would lead them to fall away from the living God. That, uh, that shows the possibility of falling away. Uh, there's a lot of people in, in the world of Christendom who want to suggest that well, once you're saved, no matter what, you're going to be saved. And a lot of times when you kind of talk through that, uh, you find out that there's a couple of interesting exit ramps about that idea. Uh, the one, of course, the, the one that is predominant in Augustinian Calvinism is, well, it, the elect will be saved. The, the issue is that there are some people who may think they're elect and seem to have the signs of the elect, but they're not really the elect. And that will be made obvious when they turn away and no longer follow God. Which, of course, leads to the situation, which is very real if you hold to that uh, viewpoint, which is that you really can never have full confidence in your election. The, um, the one that you see more in the evangelical world is that when you start kind of pursuing the line of logic of, well, what if you commit this sin or that sin, that the word saved gets drained of its power. Well, you'll still go to heaven, but you'll lose your testimony. Or uh, I've heard one person even say that you'll, you'll still be saved, but you won't go to heaven, which means that salvation is now being rendered meaningless because in order to uh, preserve the doctrine of once saved, always saved, you must now uh, completely destroy what salvation means in order to preserve it. Um, there is no way to make sense of uh, the letter to the Hebrews in a construct in which once saved, always saved is, is, is true. This is not a denial of God's sovereignty. This is not a suggestion that uh, we should go with if saved, barely saved. Uh, the alternative, but a realization that what is the Hebrews author concerned about? He's concerned that these Christians who have been faithful, um, and he's already talked about how we are his house earlier in verse 6. Uh, he is speaking to them as if they are part of the covenant people of God. In chapter 10, he's going to have these exhortations uh, that they should hold firm to their faith and the hope of their confession um, f firm to the end. That they have done many things and they have suffered many things for the cause of Christ. He's not denying that they are part of the saved. But the whole concern he has that is precipitating this entire letter is that they are in danger of falling away. That they are in danger of throwing that all away and turning away from God and back to uh, the world. Whether that world is um, the world of... Um, of second temple, late second temple Judaism, whether that world is just all the, the, the pressures that they've experienced in a mixed Jewish Gentile society, uh, whatever that uh, way the world looks to them at that point, that's what they're, they're in danger of doing just because of all of the um, distress and, and low, maybe not even explicit persecution, but it's low grade. Uh, the um, marginalization that came with following Christ, that they were just hired. And they were about to throw it all away. And that's where that evil, unbelieving heart had been developing. And you see that in verse 14 as well. That we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That 
he so he said that we share in Christ. But there's a condition on there. If we hold that original confidence, the faith that we uh, we we had when we came to Christ. And of course, this will be said in a slightly different way, but very just as poignantly by Jesus himself in the Revelation. When uh, speaking to the church in Ephesus, he indicts them because they have left their first love. And they need to repent and get back to where they had been before with that love, or he was going to remove their candlestick. So this was a two different groups at two different times having the same challenge. And it's both of those challenges, by the way, if you notice, both of those groups, um, there's been no denial of their past faithfulness. In fact, Ephesus is commended because they have held firm to the truth. They have seen those who are claimed to be apostles or not that they are false. Uh, they have done good works. It's not like these people are not Christians. They are faithful Christians. Uh, but they are very much in danger of becoming like five foolish virgins of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, 1-13. That it's taking longer, that they're losing their, their zeal, they're losing that energy, they're, they're, getting, they're, they're really feeling the pinch, and they're tempted now at this last moment uh, before they're able to enter the promised land to fall away. So what's the solution, so to speak? The solution in verse 13 is to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Now this is, we're getting that epuranios, which we also see uh, with um, the, um, give us this day the bread that is sufficient, epiusios, not epuranios, epiusios, which is uh, super essential, kind of. Uh, Daily is a translation. It's hard to understand what this word is. Uh, so, you know, it's what is needful. And so as long as today is today, as long as you have what what is needful, the super essential reality of the present, uh, there needs to be constant exhortation. Lest, or that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what's going on with there? Well, that, this is what the Hebrews author here identifies sin as deceitful. Uh, not that other authors would deny it, but the Hebrews author is who really emphasizes it. And what he wants to point out here is the deceitfulness of sin is not just that, that uh, hey, there's other alternatives out there. It's that sin promises what it cannot deliver. And sin here would promise rest. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to deal with the, the issues anymore. You just have to give up. If you give up, it'll all be easier. That's the lie that the Hebrews audience is being fed by the evil one. And when you are weary and you're not getting the support and encouragement from fellow Christians, it's very easy to fall prey to that, that you just want to rest. Well, how can you know that rest is really the issue? We're going to see as we continue that the Hebrews author is going to talk about what the rest is and what the rest looks like. Remember, the end of the psalm is that I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And so it's very tempting for these Christians here to, to say, all right, I'm going to just give up. I'm done. I can't handle it anymore. But what's going to keep them going is that exhortation from fellow Christians. And that's why it's daily. Uh, the Also in Hebrews 10, one of the exhortations is to consider one another, stir up one another, loving good works, not neglecting the assembling of one another, but encouraging uh, one another, all the more as the day draws near. You have some Christians who are here becoming inconsistent, uh, not participating in the life of the, of the church with fellow Christians, and they're about to 
do what's going to happen there, which is they're 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 hearing from the world and the pressures of the world, the deceitfulness of sin more than they're hearing from their brethren, and they're going to be very much more likely to be tempted into that sin. And that's why the Hebrews author looks to that as a really important means by which um, we take care to make sure there's not this evil, unbelieving heart, that we hold firm to the end with this constant exhortation to remind one another of the way sin deceives, how it promises so much but cannot deliver, and how we need to hold firm to the end in Christ, because the one thing that we're supposed to see in Christ, as we're as even here in Psalm 95, echoing numbers, God is faithful to his promises. God delivers on what he promises. It just takes longer and requires more of us than we might have imagined or would care for. And so it would it was a savage thing to see how Israel had been brought out of Egypt and they perished because of their own rebelliousness in the wilderness because they did not trust that God was faithful to his promise and that God would provide for them. And the Hebrews author here is seeing the same danger in the Hebrews audience that they have come so far in Christ and yet they're willing to give up just before the end uh, because they are losing hope in what God has accomplished and will accomplish and have started to doubt God's provision for them. And so he is really uh, laying it on thick here and hammering it home about what's really important here. And as we're going to continue to see, he's going to continue to expand on what is said in Psalm 95 and to talk more about that aspect of rest. And we look forward to having you join us at that time. And may the Lord bless, guard, and keep you until we're able to meet again.